Welcome to Talk Lex, a podcast dedicated to common sense discussion of legal issues facing everyday people. Brought to you by Derazio Peterson. For more information, visit Deraziopeterson.com. Welcome to another episode of Talk Lex. I am Scott Peterson. I'm here with Giovanna Derazio. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about a sort of potpourri of legal topics in the news. Uh, this podcast is going to focus on just kind of a discussion of some of the things that have been happening, give you some context about them. Uh, first, I would like to give a quick plug to the FDB podcast. Pete, George, and Roger are doing some really cool things over there. And Giovanna and I were lucky enough to be interviewed and spent about an hour with them last week talking about the Governor Cuomo situation, the Deshaun Watson situation down in Houston, uh, and some other interesting topics. Uh, so if you get a chance, please check them out, FDB Pod. Uh, you can find them on all podcast platforms as well as on Instagram. Uh, and give them a follow. I think you'll enjoy the content that they're putting out over there. So one of the things that's happening is that New York has recently opened up its eligibility for vaccines. So where do things stand on that uh, at the moment? And how is that impacting people in the workplace, given that one of the most common questions we get asked is, can my employer re- require me to get a vaccine? Well, now New York opened vaccines up, started yesterday to ages 30 plus, um, which is exciting because I think a lot of people in the 30 and 40 age group you know, didn't necessarily feel like they were as carefree about COVID as maybe some teenagers and 20-somethings are um, and have kind of been waiting patiently for our turn. So I think that was good news for a lot of people. And then April 6th, I believe it's going to open up to 16 and over, um, which my understanding is only Pfizer is approved for um, people younger than 18. Um, So that's good news. And I think we're starting to see some inklings out there now that the vaccine will be more accessible of employers starting to require vaccines. I I also saw one, at least one school in the Northeast college is going to require all their students coming back in the fall to have vaccines. Um, I think at this point, the EEOC has been pretty clear that employers would be within their rights to require their employees to be vaccinated. Um, There's precedent for that because we've seen that before with the flu shot or the H1N1 vaccine. Um, And there's a couple of exceptions to that if someone has a disability where they can't receive the vaccine or maybe a religious objection, the employer would then have to engage in that analysis of whether making an accommodation would be reasonable or whether it would impose an undue burden on them. So I think we'll just start to see that coming out more and more as time goes on. And and at least we're seeing already, perhaps not requiring it because it hasn't really been super available yet, but we're definitely have already started to see employers encouraging it and incentivizing it and New York is requiring paid time off to receive it. So I think we're gonna, it's gonna be whatever anybody feels is appropriate right now to kind of get their employees all vaccinated. It certainly seems like the state is doing its best to push 
everyone toward getting the vaccine uh, in the context of the workplace, meaning exactly what you said, by giving them, giving them time off, giving them protections, uh, and ensuring that they get out there and, and essentially allowing their employers to make that determination as to whether they're going to require it. You mentioned EEOC. For listeners who don't know what that agency is, what does that stand for and why does it matter what they think? So that's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and that's a federal agency that interprets and enforces the federal anti-discrimination laws. So Title VII, applicable to vaccines, we would be looking at Title VII, which protects people from religious discrimination, among other things, and um, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which protects people from disability discrimination and requires both of those religion and disability require reasonable accommodations under appropriate circumstances. And then the New York law has its own um, human rights law that is typically pretty similar when it comes to those issues. This is going to be a very interesting and hot topic for some time now. Uh, I can see that based upon the number of questions that we get about this, that this is not going away anytime soon. These vaccines are going to be around obviously for a long time. Uh, And what's going to be interesting is now seeing the requirement for people to probably get boosters and continuing to get these. Uh, So this will be an interesting topic. Stay tuned Uh, next week. We're actually doing a deep dive on workplace restrictions around COVID, common questions about COVID in the workplace, uh, as well as uh, so all sorts of questions about employee employees' rights at work and what kinds of things are common and the most common issues uh, in the workplace during COVID. We're doing uh, that deep dive with Joe Marie Dowling, who is a employer side lawyer uh, and someone that we hold in very high regard. So stay tuned for that coming out next week. Uh, and in the meantime, we have some other what I would call breaking news in New York at the time of this recording, which is that the New York state legislature has just signed a bill which would legalize recreational marijuana in the state. Uh, And this has been in in some way a slow moving ship in that obviously several other states have already legalized. New York was kind of late to come around. They've tried to get this through a few times uh, and now they finally have, I think probably in not small part because of the fact that New York is facing a significant deficit uh, and COVID has disrupted revenue pretty significantly. And there's, by all accounts, legalization will bring in a significant tax revenue. But another common question that we, got, that we see is, what does this do to my rights as, a, as, a, as an employee in the workplace? Uh, and that's particularly interesting in the context of the fact that this is still illegal at the federal level. Uh, so where do things stand on that and what do we expect uh, for employees in workplace rights situations uh, moving forward? Well, I think sometimes people worry about the impact of a law like this, but I would just equate it to, you know, alcohol is legal and you're not allowed to show up at work under the influence. So I think that's going to, you know, kind of not quite a huge concern. Um, it's a concern that's always existed and, and you can still, you know, make it illegal under your employment policy for somebody to come to work under the influence. Um, one thing that we've seen that is definitely a wrinkle between the federal and the state law is that under New York state law, if you have, um, 
a mar medical marijuana prescription, that is protected under the human rights law as a disability. So you can't get fired for having uh, a legal, and this is in the context of medical, not recreational marijuana, um, for having a legal uh, prescription. So that's kind of a little bit of a wrinkle because under the federal law, it remains illegal. And so you're not protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, because New York law is pretty protective, it could end up being sort of a no harm, no foul situation because New York has recently um, added some additional measures of damages to its human rights law that, you know, have probably bring it pretty similar to the federal law, but that's, that's something that is kind of interesting and going to continue to be an issue as long as it's not legal on the federal level. And, you know, even with the decriminalization, that's still going to be an issue, you know, crossing state lines and, and stuff like that. You mentioned you can't be discriminated against for having a prescription for medical marijuana. Let's say you're an employee who operates a vehicle for your employer or operates machinery. That does not entitle you to come in and ingest uh, medical marijuana or have ingested medical marijuana prior to your shift. Is that right? Yeah, no, I mean, everything I think is still going to be subject to, you know, appropriate workplace safety. But I think what this is protecting people from is, you know, if you had to get a drug test and there is um, marijuana within the parameters of your prescription, you know, I, we have seen people get fired for failing a drug test, even though they fully explained to their employer why this is coming up in that way. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember reading that some opponents of the labor law, which is the law that protects, um, you know, workers on a job site from falling off ladders or scaffolds or something like that, were pushing to have some protection for owners and general contractors if they were going to legalize um, marijuana. But I, it, from my perspective, again, you know, you can still prevent people from coming to work under the influence, uh, just like alcohol. So I, I don't know that that was necessarily a real concern that just because this is legal, suddenly everybody's going to show up to work high. <laughs> certainly, certainly hope not. Uh, or, or this will, uh, this will lead to quite a bit of litigation, which I think it probably will anyway. Um, if this is going to be the first of, of multiple discussions that we have around legalization of marijuana in New York, this is a, this is a pretty hot topic. It's a fairly significant change in the law in New York. Uh, and it's, it's an area that a lot of people have uh, significant interest in, particularly since the perception of this has shifted so dramatically in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, I, if you had asked me in the you know, late 90s, if, if New York in particular or any of these other states would have legalized marijuana, and if we would be at the cusp of legalizing it at the federal level, I would have told you you're crazy. But society's view of this has changed pretty dramatically. So we're going to be having a, a deep dive on this topic in a couple of weeks with a couple of very knowledgeable uh, guys who work in the recreational cannabis space. Uh, and we're going to talk about all sorts of things, including insurance issues, liability issues, uh, funding issues for owners, uh, employment issues, and all sorts of things surrounding 
the legalization of cannabis, both at a statewide level and a recreational level. So uh, stay tuned for that one. That's going to be a really interesting discussion. Next up, we, you know, we have to mention the fact that the George Floyd criminal trial is, is happening now for the officer, uh, Officer Chauvin, who is accused in Mr. Floyd's death. And we don't practice criminal law, uh, so we won't get into too much of the criminal side of this, uh, except to say that in future episodes, we will be having conversations about some of these criminal issues with some very well-respected, high-profile criminal defense lawyers. Uh, but from our perspective, that raised uh, the the issue of, or reminded us of, I should say, the civil settlements, uh, both in the George Floyd case and in the Eric Garner case uh, in New York. And in our world, there are sort of two ways that somebody can be punished or held accountable when something like this happens. And there's the criminal side, which is what you see happening right now. And then there's the civil side. Uh, and so the George Floyd case recently, the civil case settled for about $27 million. What, what are your first thoughts when you hear that number? Um, well, it's obviously a big number. Um, I think we, we also saw um, a double digit million settlement um, in Breonna Taylor's death as well. Um, but at the same time, I think that under current, the current climate where we're maybe belatedly and finally addressing um, the seriousness of, of what has happened to unarmed black people in their interactions with the police. Um, I, I think in the context of everything that has happened uh, since he was killed, it's a big number, but it seems appropriate. And my understanding is that the city of Minneapolis has paid out $20 million settlements in the past. Um, so they may have a internal serious problem there. Um, where, where there is a history of this type of thing that has still not been remedied that probably underlies some of the number that they came up with. Yeah, and when you look at that number versus uh, $5.9 million settlement in Eric Garner's case, which was several years ago now, many people sort of outside of the legal community wonder where these numbers are coming from and, and what, what, the, what the family would be entitled to. So I wanted to give a little bit of a breakdown of how this actually works in New York. If someone dies as a result of some negligence or in this case, allegedly intentional conduct or reckless conduct, there's a process by which their estate can bring a legal proceeding on their behalf. It's called wrongful death case. Uh, and in order to do that, they have to have an administrator appointed to, to act on behalf of the estate. And that's a pretty straightforward process that you go through. So typically that would be like a spouse or a surviving child, or the court can appoint someone that they think is appropriate. That person can then file a, a lawsuit that says this person died wrongfully at the hands of somebody else. And that person should be held responsible Ordinarily, in those cases in New York, at least, the damages are essentially characterized as economic loss and, and loss for conscious pain and suffering. Economic loss means how much did the family lose because of this person's death? Was this person contributing to the household 
by way of a job? Did they earn money that they were contributing to the family? Uh, did they have any kind of benefits or anything like that? And then there's the conscious pain and suffering side, which, which is how much did this person suffer before they died? If you're a lay person, you say to yourself, well, how on earth do you put a number on that? Uh, and it's a challenge. It's, there's no science to it. But I think what you're seeing in these cases is the gravity of what is perceived to have been very severe conscious pain and suffering. Um, from my, the accounts that I've read, both Mr. Floyd and Mr. Garner uh, were out of work or were looking for work at the time of uh, their deaths. So what, what these settlements tell us is that both entities acknowledged internally that there was a serious risk to them based upon the conscious pain and suffering that was in both cases captured uh, and witnessed. And so uh, you might think, well, $27 million seems like a lot of money or even $6 million seems like a lot of money, but it is very easy for someone to put themselves in the shoes of a family member when we've all seen and heard uh, what took place in these cases. So in my mind, it's actually not all that much given the risk that these municipalities uh, that they that they faced. Uh, would you would you agree with that, or what do you think? Yeah, and I think another sort of element of damages that's a little bit more um, ambiguous is punitive damages under federal section 1983 as a federal civil rights claim. Um, you can recover punitive damages under that, especially in cases like this and George Floyd, where this was on video and. Most people who have seen this video are kind of horrified by what happened here. Um, you know, there's a pretty, there's risk um, for lots of different types of damages that they're looking to punish um, the perpetrators that, that they can get those numbers up pretty high if you were going to go all the way through a trial, um, you know, and, and a lot of the law, at least in New York, New York has tried to loosen it up a little bit recently, but um, often police records and police disciplinary records were sort of confidential, but in a lawsuit, all this stuff starts to come out. So there was a lot of reasons why a city might settle a case like this for a lot of money. And, and I think in my humble opinion, kind of rightly so, and sometimes I think as people who practice in the civil justice system, that's how you effectuate change is by hitting people in the pocketbook. That's kind of what that system is designed, how it's designed to compensate people. So big numbers like this through the idea is also that it will um, effectuate some change moving forward as well. You mentioned uh, an important piece of this, which is in, in the George Floyd case, that case settled pre-suit. That means it settled before there was ever a lawsuit. It also means it settled before anyone was, was forced to give a deposition uh, and before they were forced to produce any documentation of history of, the, of employees or of complaints of relating to uh, violence in this situation or racist activity uh, within the department. So that is, that is certainly suggestive that the city recognized the risk that it faced uh, and the potential for a big, a big number. Now, I believe in both cases that there was no admission of liability on, on behalf of the, the municipalities. What is that common? What do you think? 
Yeah, well, actually, I think the Brianna Taylor settlement was considered to be pretty significant because it actually included a bunch of police reforms. Um, I think they abolished the no-knock uh, warrants in within the context of that settlement. So I think that that was pretty significant. I don't know that you know you see that very often unless a case is brought by the government, you know, like the Justice Department prosecutes a case or in the employment context if the EEOC itself prosecutes a case, then you might see some settlements that actually change policies moving forward. But I don't know that you typically see that in a private settlement. Um, so I thought that was interesting in that one. I, I don't know personally the other two, whether there was any, I, I would assume there would not be any admission of wrongdoing in a in the context of a settlement, usually that's a boilerplate language that the defendant is not admitting to any wrongdoing. Yeah, that's a good point. They, in most cases, almost every case in New York, when you settle a lawsuit, there's an explicit provision that says the defendant does not admit any wrongdoing. And sometimes clients have a hard time swallowing that. And they say, well, why, why aren't they admitting that they did anything wrong? Uh, and that's, unfortunately, that's a trade-off in the in the case that you are resolving your case, then they, they are not ultimately often admitting any, any wrongdoing. Now, the, the other side of that is paying this kind of money is implicitly an acknowledgement that they did something wrong and that they had a risk. Uh, so as much as they may wanna say, well, we never admitted that we did anything wrong. Uh, as Giovanna mentioned, this is how change is effectuated. Uh, in the civil system, this is the option. Uh, and so, yeah, and there's other ways to hold you know people accountable. I think the officer in Eric Garner um, death was ultimately fired after a pretty long time, um, you know, of legal proceedings. And you know, obviously, this Derek Chauvin is one of the few people to actually be charged and go through a criminal trial, which I think is a positive thing, sort of just in and of itself that he was charged. So you know, there are other ways to hold people accountable, whether it's their employment or criminally, but yeah, the on a civil lawsuit is intended to make you whole in some way for your financial loss or to punish the defendant in a monetary way. So you're you're a little bit limited into what you can do in that process. Okay, we'll shift gears one last time here, talk about something that probably seems a little bit lighter, but for reasons that we'll discuss, you know, is also important. Uh, I read yesterday that President Biden's dog, Major, uh, coincidentally the same name as Giovanna's brother's dog, uh, has bit its second person in the last month. I think they refer to it as a nip, but either way, uh, I feel like that might be a problem for, for the family. I don't know the law in, in D.C., but what, what does that mean if you were in New York? That's a problem, right? It is a problem. Well, I think in New York, we have this idea of one free bite is a commonly used term, but I, I don't even know that that is really um, accurate under what the law is in New York. So here we have what's called strict liability when a domestic animal injures somebody. And basically what that means is if you can demonstrate that the owner of the animal had knowledge of the animal's dangerous propensity, and sometimes we hear that described as a vicious propensity, but you know the case law kind of says we're not necessarily looking at you know viciousness like from a 
Cujo, Stephen King movie sort of perspective, we're looking at really any kind of um, sort of negative behavior that could result in somebody being injured. That's sort of the standard on a dangerous propensity. Um, and once you can establish that the owner of the animal had knowledge of that, then you don't have to prove any negligence. That's what strict liability means. So it doesn't mean that you were careful and that you had a fence around your property or anything like that. It just means that, um, you know, as the dog owner, the law has decided to put the burden on you and your insurance company to bear the cost of somebody being injured by uh, your animal. So, you know, in, in this poor major situation, um, you know, I don't know that he has actually necessarily injured anyone, but the fact that it has happened more than once from a civil kind of liability dog bite perspective, if it happens again and somebody wants to sue you about it, then you might have a problem there. Yeah. And that can, it can potentially be a big problem um, because who puts their hands and faces around the face of a dog? Kids. And I've, I will still never forget a case that I was involved with several years ago that with a minor, a young child who was six years old, and she, she put her face up near a neighbor's dog and unknown to her or her family, the dog had previously bitten two other people, both of whom were adults, so they didn't really get hurt. And the dog bit her in the eye and she had to go undergo, I think, six surgeries over the course of the next four years. Um, and it was unbelievably traumatic for her and for her family. So it's, you know, everybody or many people kind of snicker at these types of cases or these types of stories. But the reality is that lots and lots of us own dogs. And when push comes to shove, they are animals. And uh, the law is pretty strict about that. And it recognizes that. And it, it essentially says, you know, like Giovanna said, you've got one chance here. And if you figure out that the dog is dangerous, it's on you. Uh, so Hopefully the Bidens uh, don't run into this issue, but if you own a dog in New York, it's something that you should really be aware of um, because these, these incidents happen very quickly, uh, often unexpectedly, and you can find yourself uh, in a heap of trouble and your insurance company can be very displeased with you uh, if, if something like that were to happen. Yeah, and I think just a little side note to that is that renters, um, you know, and people who have domestic animals that don't necessarily own their property um, should be mindful of having insurance because if your animal injures somebody and you don't have homeowner's insurance or renter's insurance or something like that, somebody can get a personal judgment against you. So I, I don't know that that's something that people fully think through when they um, get a new pet. And I know that during the pandemic, it kind of became almost a cliche about how many people were um, getting new pets and adopting all the rescue animals out of shelters, which is wonderful. Um, but at the same time, you know, anytime you kind of mix potentially an inexperienced dog owner with maybe a dog whose history you don't know, and then you don't have insurance, God forbid something happens, you could find yourself with a lot of problems that you didn't really anticipate. Yes, when all else fails, get insurance. That holds true in most aspects of, of risk management. Um, okay, we're going to wrap it there. Uh, thanks very much for listening. As I mentioned here, we've got a couple of really interesting interviews coming up in the next several weeks. So please, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. 
Uh, feel free to follow us on Instagram at TalkLex Podcast. Uh, and if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to leave us a review. It would be very helpful. Uh, questions, hit us up on Instagram, leave us a direct message or comment in one of the posts, and we would be happy to answer them on the next show or on an upcoming show. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.